Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're speaking with Carolyn Jones, the Principal Solicitor for Youth Law Australia, about your child and the law. During this conversation, Carolyn will explain what parents, carers and young people need to know about consent laws, such as the legal consequences of sexting between children and young people, the differences in the law between states and the increasing problems she's seeing of sextortion and image-based sexual abuse. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us on the Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. It's a really great organisation to be working with and, and I think we partner really well to to both reach kids with education but then also to provide them with legal support when things go wrong. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do? So Youth Law Australia is a national community legal centre for children and young people under the age of 25. We kind of describe ourselves as helping anyone under 25 or their advocates with any kind of legal matter anywhere in Australia. It's huge. We have a few different teams that work in different areas, uh, so including employment law and a general practice that kind of deals with things like schooling matters, fines, debts, tenancy, and then the practice that I work in is called the harm practice. We're funded under the National Strategy to Prevent and Respond to Child Sexual Abuse, and we're largely focused on using technology to reach kids so that they can come and ask us their legal questions and get information and advice services. One of the most exciting things that we've been funded to pilot is live chat legal services with kids. And so we started that last year. It's been operating for over 12 months now. Um, we're just coming into an evaluation to kind of get a better idea of, of how that's working for everybody. But essentially it means that kids can jump on our website and find the live chat widget and chat in real time to a lawyer and ask questions about anything. They can do it anonymously. So if they're anxious about the content or they're worried they're going to get in trouble or that someone might find out that they've spoken to a lawyer, they can come and kind of test it out, ask us some questions. And then if they feel safe and comfortable with us, we can then ask for contact details and then engage with them further by phone or email and in some cases run a case for them if they've got particular matters where we might need to do a bit of extra work to support them. 
but it's great uptake. We have <laughs> we have a lot of kids testing us out. We've become experts in dealing with some trolling online. Ooh. Our staff have some similar experiences, I suppose, to some of the stuff the kids are dealing with online too. But in, in saying that, we also have amazing questions and brave questions from kids jumping on to make really heavy disclosures about harm they're experiencing or things that have happened in the past and asking for ways out of that. So it's a, it's a great service and we, um, we're sort of available 24 hours via our website so kids can also jump on if they don't want to engage with us even through chat anonymously. They can send a request through our web form and, and give a brief summary of uh, what's been happening and ask for our assistance and then we respond by email or phone if they've provided those contact details. Essentially we're just very flexible. It sounds like you're really meeting young people where they're at. Basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a child rights based legal practice. So we our two main principles in our practice is that we're child safe and we're a child rights practice. So we're very much about encouraging kids to have a safe space to come and engage with somebody who's really on their side in a way that they often don't get anywhere else. So I think we can talk a little bit more later, I suppose, about some of that, what that means for lawyers in the sense that we're not mandatory reporters. So it's quite a different space that we often have kids making big disclosures that we don't have an obligation then to pass on to child protection or police. And that can be quite a useful tool for kids to kind of explore what's happened and to work out what's the next safe step for them to take. Well, it's interesting because even in this podcast, in, in the, the interviews we've done, with, there's been a lot of discussion about how hard it is for children and young people to disclose to their parents. They don't want to let them down. They, they, they know something's gone wrong. It really gives another option, doesn't it, for young people who might be in something over their head? Absolutely. And I think that's something which we really would like parents and carers and teachers and other, other practitioners to understand the value of that. I think there's some anxiety that kids might be dealing with these things and even telling us. And then there's not a step taken to have a protective response. But what we find is it's really important to encourage kids to be part of the help seeking process, including identifying solutions that are practical for them. Look, sometimes the step we will take is to say, you've told us something incredibly serious, you're at ongoing risk, and we'll obtain their consent to work with them about a way to perhaps bring it to the attention of someone who's a mandatory reporter or to encourage them to directly seek that help themselves. Sometimes uh, we'll do that with them on the phone, so we may call the child protection service with a young person to sort of link them in so they can talk to, to somebody about what's happened. But as a general rule, it's really important to just have a safe space to explore it. And one of the other reasons for that is that often kids, in addition to having been harmed and maybe being a victim survivor of some something that's happened in the real world or online, they may have also committed offences themselves. And so it's really important that they get legal advice before they make a disclosure or an admission against their interests. I imagine this is an area too that's probably grown a lot in recent years, but that online space has become incredibly problematic, hasn't it, and it's just exploded. It really has. We sort of feel on the forefront like a lot of a lot of other frontline responding services when you hear about things, you're like, oh, there's a new social media platform or app we haven't heard of and now it's being misused. Or there's behaviours, and I'm, I'm sure that other people that have been involved with this series have talked about things like sextortion, which is massive for us as well. It's probably a weekly request we're getting kids. Mm. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, having already paid money, quite you know, desperate to have images not shared, and so they're understandably taking whatever steps they can to protect themselves, but then seeking advice. I think there's a lot of interesting space in just things like deep fakes and even potentially the AI space. We're starting to get some questions around images that might be generated through AI. Like that's not something kids are necessarily bringing to us 
directly at the moment, but we're aware that there's some anxiety <laughs> around that. But yeah, there's lots and lots of emerging issues. Well, what are the laws around this, if we can talk specifically? I suppose if we start with what, what would you call a technology-assisted harmful sexual behaviour, to be technical? What, what, what does that come down to? There's a lot of things that would fall into that space. So probably the most common one that people are thinking about when they think about kids is sexting, so uh, sending nudes. Um, A lot of that's done actually just within a fairly safe peer-to-peer context, but unfortunately it's against the law um, and becomes child abuse material. So I think one of the things that's important for people to understand is that distinction between um, sexting, which is completely okay if you if everyone's 18 and older and consenting to sharing those images there's no problem with swapping nudes sending sexy texts but if you're under 18 or one of the parties involved is under 18 then it becomes child abuse material and that includes texts it's not just images so if kids are you know 14 15 16 year olds are sending each other texts about sexual behaviors or body parts that you know genitals and breasts and things like that then they're veering into child abuse material. And it's something which is really hard to explain to young people that potentially they're of the age of consent to have sex. So they'll be 16 and they can have sex, but they can't sext about the sex they've just had. And so it's it, it's confusing. And it's no wonder that kids are, are challenged. Uh, we're challenged by that. There's a lot of spaces we could have some law reform to make it um, a safer space for kids. And then further down the line, we've got the harm that falls into image-based abuse categories, which uh, sometimes in a in a partner or an ex-partner context that might be seen as, you know, it's often in the media has been called revenge porn. We tend to prefer not to use that title. It's not super helpful. Probably better just to talk about it is just tech facilitated abuse form. So it's a way to hurt somebody and control somebody either during or after a relationship by threatening to share or sharing images about them, sexual images or videos and other content, which often has been recorded with with everybody's consent at the time, it's then just misused later. Another area that's really exploding for us is harm in school context. So we'll have kids and parents and carers contacting us about a young person who may have, for example, been filmed going to the toilet or filmed getting changed at school without their consent by somebody in their peer network. And then that that video or that image is shared in a chat group and then suddenly everyone's seen it and it's it's kind of like teasing at the next level using images which are obviously very sensitive and very harmful to somebody who might have been in a position where they're naked or semi-naked or doing something private and we find that schools and police and everyone else is really struggling to come up with any kind of consistent responsiveness to that and we see quite varied responses so for example there's image-based abuse in some schools so sharing an intimate image or you know a nude image of somebody might result in an immediate expulsion because it's a breach of a school policy whereas in other schools there might be no consequence and no investigation and similarly with police I think this is part of the confusion for kids that you might have a really good response from police in some cases where they'll come in and explain that that's an that's an offence and be educative in their response rather than punitive. And in other cases, kids are being charged. So it's, it is very difficult for us, particularly as a national practice, to be able to consistently reassure kids of, of, a, of a known consequence to these behaviours. So I think that's something which would be good for us to, to keep talking about across the society. It's really hard for kids. It must be challenging as a national practice. I imagine the laws around 
sexting and particularly, but, but all of this area, are they different between states? Yes, everything is different between the states. So what we have, for example, is with age of consent laws. So just broadly speaking, age of consent to sexual activity varies between the states of being 16 or 17 years. But then in saying that there's also complexities in what's called a similar age defence, which some people may have heard as being described, the old terminology was a Romeo and Juliet law. So basically the idea is that we don't want to criminalise kids that are having fairly healthy and normal sexual development and exploration with their peers. You know, that I think that's something which I would challenge anyone listening today really to, to realise we actually have to be really comfortable with the idea that kids have a right to be sexual and kids are sexual and from a very young age. And we all probably have to get comfy with that, even if that's a little bit challenging for you based on your upbringing or your faith or your cultural values. But it, it's really important. And I think that that's, that's how we keep kids safe, is being comfortable with their right to have a, a sexual self and what that looks like and how to explore that. So I think part of the similar age defence is useful for that reason, because it sort of says, look, okay, the age of consent in your jurisdiction might be 16, but if you're 14, and this is, for example, based on New South Wales law, if you're 14, it's okay if you have had a sexual activity that's a wanted sexual activity with somebody in your peer network who's no more than two years older than you. So basically you're both 14 and within two years of each other in age. Then you're not going to get in trouble. There's a defence available to you. So it may be that a parent is still upset about that happening and they may report that to police, but the young person won't face a criminal consequence, which is really important because we don't want to be criminalising kids or shaming kids for behaviours, which I think, you know, as, as I've just flagged, is pretty pretty important part of their development is to work out what works for them sexually and, and what sort of partner they want to be to other people. I mean, that, that's, that, that's actually really healthy stuff. There's lifelong consequences for that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it just, um, in addition to criminal consequences, just the shame around that forces kids kind of underground then and that's when they're more at risk. So if they're not comfy to actually talk about the feelings and to sometimes act on those feelings... Then, then potentially they're taking risks online and, and maybe meeting people in real life that they've met online in spaces that aren't safe. Mm. And so then there are other complexities around the laws for kids around the, which is very topical at the moment, there's lots in the media about the consent laws and affirmative consent. There's currently been some parliamentary hearings in relation to some changes in that space. So I think the Affirmative consent, which is an amazing change, which we now have in five jurisdictions, we're still waiting on another three. So what we have are laws which say yes, basically it's now a yes means yes rather than a no means no approach to sex. But if we don't have that uniformly across Australia, that, that's also confusing. And I think that we're seeing that kids are saying that to us. Well, okay, I'm watching this TV show and it's saying something different. So if you watch a TV show that's made in New South Wales, but you live in you know, Western Australia, maybe you're getting completely wrong information about sex and consent. And so it would just be lovely if that was something that we could get all the uh, attorney generals to come together to have some sort of <laughs> consensus on sex. I was thinking that. Thing. Yeah, like what's the answer to that? I mean, I suppose it's, you can't make a federal law about it, but yes, to get that consensus between states. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, that's the more boring stuff about law, really, that a lot of it's constitutional power mm. division. So laws around crime and other certain other laws fall to the states to make those laws and I mean it is possible to have harmonisation and that's certainly the discussion that's happening at the moment that there is some harmonisation on the age of consent and affirmative consent and then the similar age defences and also uh, one other space which maybe has come up for people is around what we call a special carer 
provision, which means, for example, that even if you are above the age of consent, so you might be a 16-year-old, you can't actually consent to having any sort of sexual activity with someone who is your special carer or a person in position of authority. So, for example, that might be a teacher or a sporting coach or somebody like that. So if you're in contact with that person and you want to start a relationship with them because they've had that position of authority, you then can't consent to a relationship with them till you're at least 18, so you're an adult. So there's just a sense that there's also that additional risk because of that power imbalance that might exist in that relationship. So I think all of those things need to be really clear, uniform, and you know, kids, kids should be told, and parents and carers need to know it too, because it just helps to, to uh, make kids realise that we're all on the same page here, because that's, that's definitely the sense we have. Uh, probably the number one inquiry we get through our live chat is... So I'm 14 and my partner's like 16, you know, can we have sex? Are we going to get in trouble? And so we we have a lot of those kind of just really pretty, uh, it would seem pretty sort of straightforward inquiries, but really it's not. And actually they're great questions. And we often have to go back and just remind ourselves state by state, territory by territory, what (laughs) what the laws say. For young people who might be listening, I suppose, or parents, what is the best response if they're like, I actually don't know what my age of consent is in this state, or is it to ring people like you, or are there resources online maybe that we could put in the show notes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, our website is fairly useful. We have lots and lots of pages on these topics, so you can... and. If you jump onto the Youth Law Australia website, you can search, for example, age of consent. And then when you jump on, jump on that page, there's a little feature in the top right corner where you can change to the jurisdiction that you're in. So it's it, it, we're very conscious of that. So we want kids to make sure that they're um, supported in their own help seeking and information gathering. Uh, and we find they do. And that's when they'll come and ask questions, but ask. And we do have a lot of kids who will come to us and say that. Like, I'm thinking about starting a sexual relationship. I just want to check that. We're not going to break any laws. So it's amazing. Like, I, I think kids are amazing. Yeah, they're pretty savvy. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And they're comfortable, I think, in this day and age to connect and ask these questions, which Ooh. is why we've put so much investment as a as a national technologically based practice to be in the spaces where kids are so they can find us and ask those questions. So what about sextortion we, we mentioned as well and understanding the laws in each state and territory around that? Are there some big differences between the states there too? Not as much. So I think sextortion is one of those offences which I think everyone universally agrees that it's it's pretty outrageous. And I think that the the risk for kids is that it sneaks up on them. So it's pretty pretty common that young people, and I think particularly this is a gendered experience, that we find it's mostly young men who are online who are basically catfished or hooked into an engagement with somebody pretending to be a young woman offering to swap nudes and so I mean that's pretty I get that that sounds pretty appealing (laughs) you know you think yep that sounds great let's do that Uh, so kids are jumping on and often what will happen is they get sent they get sent a nude from whoever it is pretending to be this young person it's I'm pretty pretty confident to say it's never a young woman on the other end of the of that particular engagement on social media. It's almost always from from what we're piecing together. Basically, organised crime often by organisations outside of Australia. So it's very clear, very sophisticated. They spend a lot of time cultivating giant portfolios of stolen child abuse material by by this so if a young person says okay great you've shared a nude I'll share a nude so they send back you know a dick pic and that goes back to the person on the other end that that image then becomes part of their collection of images that they then use 
to share and further exploit young people who've shared those images. What then happens is pretty quickly they'll get a response from the person pretending to be the young woman that will say something like, right, I'm now going to share that image with everybody in your contact list. They'll often screenshot a list of their contacts from one of, you know, Instagram and Snapchat are some of the, the key places this happens. They'll have a little snap or a screenshot of to prove that they've got access to their contacts. They'll say, we're about to send this to everybody unless you in most cases pay us a certain amount of money or send us gift cards so gift cards are like steam gift cards like the gaming gift cards and things very common kind of currency they'll be asked to send that um, in some instances they might be asked to send more nudes to stop them from doing it so um, you know it's yeah and it snowballs pretty quickly and kids are obviously incredibly anxious um, and particularly if you're from a community or a family which you know has particular or quite conservative values around sex or cultural or faith-based values around sex, the consequences are serious. And so kids tend to spend a lot of money. We've had kids spending anywhere from like $50 to well over $1,000 they'll pay and they keep paying. And so one of the things that we're very clear to express, which I know federal police through the ACE website and eSafety Commissioner and others are all very clear on the same thing, basically don't pay, block the contact walk away get help because as soon as you engage as soon as you start paying they'll just keep coming and 99% of the time this person is not actually going to do anything because they're also at risk of committing child abuse offences by sharing images themselves and so they're kind of really just playing on people's fear and so I understand that there's no judgment if people do engage and pay I get how scary that must be but we really want to reassure that the best thing you can do is not pay and get legal advice quickly Unfortunately for some young people, they're also then at risk because if they have shared an image of themselves, that's child, that's a child abuse material offence. Uh, and so if they go to the police, uh, there is a risk that they may uh, be investigated themselves for having shared child abuse material. Even if So basically, if you're swapping nudes online and both parties look like they're under 18, even if one of them's you and you've consented to sharing it, that's still an offence. And so the advice we're giving young people is, where possible, get legal advice first. Just so we can check with you about what content's been shared, what content you still have stored on your devices. And so generally the best advice I can give kids, parents and carers is get legal advice first to sort of talk about what the potential consequences might be depending on what's happened. And definitely don't hand devices over to police like your phone or anything until you've had a chance to get legal advice. Because I think kids sometimes forget that they're, you know, they might have swapped nudes with a girlfriend or something. And like, obviously that, as I said, that in terms of developmental stages, that's pretty understandable. But unfortunately, according to the law, it's actually a child abuse material offence. And so we have had kids get in trouble in that way, that they've gone to report something where they've been the victim of something like sextortion. They've handed over the device. Police have found other images in their phone, unrelated, but, but something that's been done in a wanted way with a peer. And then they're suddenly facing a different consequence. So it's, it's a really messy area. And we really feel sorry for kids because it actually makes it hard for them to safely just go straight to police and seek help because they, they're kind of potentially implicated in the behaviour themselves. Truly, listening to what you're saying, Carolyn, it's no wonder that young people are confused. Just the, the detail and that difference between states, they could even be charged. No wonder we, we need a youth law service like you that they can go to. Yeah, I, and I think that's, the, that as, as I flagged earlier, I think that's the message we really want, that people shouldn't, as much as possible, and I know that it's hard to say shouldn't, uh, feel shame and awkwardness about help seeking in this space. I think when you call a service or email or chat with a service like ours, uh, 
you can trust that the lawyers there are we're trauma informed, which means that we're we're very aware that some of the things that young people might disclose to us uh, involve probably the worst thing that's happened to them or something that's incredibly harmful and may be a child abuse or a child abuse material offence. And, you know, we have a a policy of we believe children and we very strongly encourage children and young people to be part of the journey in working out what steps they take next. And I think part of that, that process is also trying to bring the adults in their life along with them and I have to say that that's one of our biggest challenges so I have a lot of empathy for parents and carers I think you're in a complex space in that some of the behaviors obviously it's your child and it might be quite confronting but encouraging early help seeking behaviors and being part of the process of finding a solution is some of the best sort of gifts that you can give your kids because it's teaching them that it's okay to ask for help it's you know recognizing curiosity (laughs) um, even if it's challenging what they're curious about and and recognizing resilience of kids so I I feel like that's the sort of best way to keep kids safe and to be doing it as early as possible so I think I mean typically our age range for a lot of these questions is really high school kids. We do get some inquiries and increasingly getting more inquiries from primary school age kids. So it's definitely starting earlier, but we find that there's still often younger kids are more, I suppose, conditioned to look to parents and carers first, which is great. And obviously parents and carers are an amazing resource and support in in, certainly in the cases where they're not the person that's causing the harm. And so we want to bring them along with the children and young people in the help seeking process. But I suppose one of the main messages that we would really like to get across, I know there's a tendency for people to say, let's really limit children and young people's access to devices. We would probably take a different view in that we see that as a useful tool in help seeking. And so kids, kids have a right to information and to be curious. They have a right to reach out and to ask for help online and to engage with safe services. So I think completely understand that there might be some parental supervision and and guidance around the amount of device use and potentially the websites and the content uh, that are harmful but we would certainly suggest that a solution isn't to just limit completely kids access to devices because you're taking away their opportunities to get assistance as well and I think particularly in the space that we've we're identifying where that's most complex uh, is the the online behaviors that we're talking about today so child abuse material sexting offenses cyberbullying that happens with image-based abuse it's happening in context mostly within education and with peer-to-peer relationships. So essentially it's domestic violence and coercive control as well. So if you've got a partner or an ex-partner who you've separated from and like you might be 15 or 16, it's broken your heart, they were the love of your life at that point, but at some point you might have you know, sent them a nude image and then suddenly they're sharing it with all their mates or in some other way shaming you with that image. I think we need to recognise that, that kids aren't just dealing with child abuse material offences, they're dealing with complex relationships where that can be potentially domestic violence. And if particularly in cases we see where some young people are being coerced or manipulated into reconnecting into that relationship or to taking a step they don't want to take for fear of that image being shared. And so I I think kids are navigating some really complex dynamics and increasingly harmful. Like the school-based harm is something that you know, we have a lot of empathy for teachers and other school staff. We think it's a space that's 
it's just exploding. I mean, that's a daily inquiry for us with kids experiencing pretty serious sexual-based harm at school, and it may be image-based child abuse material offences, or it can be actual physical sexual harm happening within the school environments. And so I feel like yeah, anything we can do to create spaces where kids can safely ask those questions without fear of judgment or reprisal and being confident that their primary caregivers are also going to be able to come along for the ride, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. We're very open to that. And with young people who want to speak to us with a parent or carer present, we will do that because we recognise that that's a safe person for that young person. And if it makes them feel comfortable to talk to us absolutely we'll say yep we'll explain a little bit that that might mean that we don't have as much confidentiality because you've got another person in in the phone call and involved in the matter but for some kids they they desperately want their parent or or carer to hear to hear what we're talking about and so that everyone is on the same page and we're working towards the same goal of keeping them safe so taking away that shame that's really key what are there any other aspects i suppose for parents and carers who are listening or teachers as well about prevention is that what advice would you give to to arm our children with the knowledge that they need is is it really talking about this as much as possible I think so I feel like it needs I mean and there's far more articulate and well um, experienced people in this space than 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 me but I feel there's this is what we need to be doing from a very young age I know there's been shifting in the thinking around curriculums for schools and we have seen some changes in the curriculums around relationship and sex education in schools that's you know I think anything that recognizes gendered dynamics and gendered violence I think that those are discussions we should be having with kids before they even kind of hit school really I think that can be something very young age in in an age appropriate way but I feel like those those conversations we need to be embedding from the start and I think parents and carers need to be on board so that the messaging is consistent. Like talking about really what's legal, what's illegal, what's what's fun, what's what, what's your right to take part in. And what a healthy, respectful relationship looks like. So oh. I suppose in an ideal world, I think that we would encourage kids to really take the time to work out who they are. You know, who are you? What's your gender and sexuality, identity? What do you think you feel comfortable to express to the world about yourself? And then what are you looking for in people that you want to connect with as as a potential, it might be a romantic partner, a sexual partner or a dating partner. We have kids at all stages. And a lot of kids don't actually want to have sex. They just want to be forming relationships and have those connections. But they're conscious that the framework around it is an assumption that it's sexual, which often it's not. Like kids really just want to be exploring and that's healthy and great, but we need to create space so that kids feel safe to do that. But yeah, look, I really do reinforce that parents and carers are an incredibly protective factor, but a lot of it is being on board with recognising that we need to have these conversations a lot earlier and in a way where kids can ask questions that might make the adults a bit uncomfy. But we, we need to do that. We need to stop and think, oh, okay. Like, I mean, I have to say a really great example is we, we have done some education in schools. We don't do as much of that as we'd like just simply because we're not big enough. But we'll go and do sex and consent and sexting, child abuse material education in schools. And it's really telling that we might get a question, for example, like, you know, can boys be raped? Like, that's a question we've been asked. And I think it's quite a genuine question because I think there's that assumption with violence that it is, you know, sexual violence is gendered. And I feel like there's there's probably a sense that boys are always perceived as being the people in the wrong. And it, then that's silencing people of all genders. They're not then comfortable to actually say, well, that's actually been my experience. What do I do? And so I think it's not necessarily a safe space that we're creating if we can't have conversations where we, we can talk openly about all of all of those experiences without kind of age limits or gender limits I, f- I feel like that's that's where we get stuck because as soon as we start assuming oh that's not a behavior you have to worry about to a certain age or that's something that only 
girls or boys have to worry about without recognising, obviously, that its gender is much more diverse than that and it's not... A, you know, a universal experience for one for one particular gender. Are there any resources you'd recommend for parents and carers as well? I mean, it sounds like perhaps having a look at the website, your website as well, that we'll put in the show notes. Uh, but. Yeah, I mean, our website's Ooh. useful in terms of the legalities. So, in terms yeah. of an overview, I probably we, it's not our it's not our specialty or space to be educating around mm. healthy sexual relationships. Often, the services that we're using, uh, in addition, there's great services, you know, like Daniel Morgan Foundation do great education in that space. Mm. We use a lot of, often the places like the family planning associations, for example, um, they'll have just really kind of frank, open pages, you know, where they're using the actual terminology for body parts you know like it's not we're not being obscure about what we're talking about here it's it's very clear what we're talking about and I think for kids who are from diverse sexualities for example there's often uh, websites that will target those experiences and similarly with disability for example I've worked with a great organization called SECA in Western Australia that do amazing work around sex and consent education for people of all abilities and I, I mean, I really recommend that. Like, I think I think you should be, you know, well, everyone ideally should be seeking out the content. And there's also some really smart and savvy young people doing great work around consent and sex education. And like in New South Wales, we work a lot with an organisation called Consent Labs that do the do the work in the schools. There's a lot happening. We just it's not universal. And I think kids, unfortunately, we can't guarantee that all kids get access to that. And I think potentially a lot of it is depending on the school you're at. So we often find the private and independent schools don't have as much access to this content as kids in in the sort of state-funded schools. Which I suppose as parents and carers you, you need to be aware of perhaps and being aware that, okay, if my child is at that private or independent school, we might need to talk about it a bit more frankly and mm-hmm. actually just really acknowledge some of those differences as well. Uh, you've got a great sexual health and law for under-18s fact sheet as well, which I will definitely be putting in the show notes. That is incredibly yeah. helpful. And and as you say, for, for children of whatever gender they're identifying with, also advice regarding pornography I noticed in there I mean that must be another area that's just exploded of 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 late and we've we've spoken to Marie Crabb on the podcast about just the explicit content now that is available and how that's affecting young people's relationships yes (laughs) I can only say yes and again pornography is one of those spaces that's confusing because there's no actual laws that prevent kids from viewing pornography where everybody in the imagery is over 18. So the issue then is if it's material that includes anyone that is under 18 or is depicted to appear like they're under 18, then that becomes child abuse material and there's offences that cover that. But if it's over 18s and kids are looking at that online, there's there's not actually an offence for them to view that. And I think that's obviously... That's a whole other issue about what's out there online and how easy it is to access it. There's a lot more regulation about being able to actually upload that content online rather than regulations on the viewer, which, to be to be fair, I think makes sense. We don't actually want kids being criminalised because they've come across porn online, but clearly there needs to be processes where... I think a lot of it is the takedown processes. If that can happen more quickly, if there's content that's particularly harmful, I think one of the things that people don't understand all the time is that child abuse material isn't just about sexualised content, it's also content that depicts things like torture or pain and often some of the imagery that's in the porn space is actually quite harmful in the sense that it would appear that the person is being 
in some cases sexually assaulted or tortured in some other way. And I know that there's been an explosion in that kind of content, which is, I, you know, I didn't want this to happen, but I got talked into it. Or I didn't want this to happen, but you've shown me the way and now I want that to happen. And so there's often a, a narrative at the start, which is somebody being forced or harmed, but ultimately become a willing partner. And that's the, that's the pathway I think that's most concerning for young people because that's messing with the messaging we want around affirmative consent, which is, you know, yes means yes, not like a, I talked you into it for half an hour and then you said yes, <laughs> you know. And so I think that's something which they're the grey areas that's really hard for kids and they're the kinds of questions they ask us, you know. I mean, I, we've had some amazing inquiries from young people where they will blow by blow set out for us. Okay, so this is what happened. I went to a party and I hooked up with this person and I asked about this and they said yes. And then I asked this and then they said, oh, maybe. And then I said, okay, take some time to think about it. And then we, then we got to, you know, we got to a yes. Then there's a section that happened where we did this, but I'm not actually sure if I remembered to ask, am I going to get in trouble? Have I committed a sexual assault? And so I think for kids who take it literally, and I think particularly kids in and a big, a big percentage of the young people we work with are neurodivergent, they're ASD. I think a lot of it for them is that we really want this information spelled out to us. We want to know exactly what we can and can't do. Unfortunately, the law is a bit grey and we can't give that to them. Um, and particularly if the education and the communications from parents and carers is also a bit grey, then kids are, are a little bit lost. And so I think we just all have to be kind and patient with young people as they navigate some stuff which we struggle with. Uh, it's, a, it's a regular thing for us to be going back to the law to say, okay, what have they actually done here? Is this actually an offence? What's gone on here? Um, and I think that that's, I think that's helpful for people to know. It's, it's, not, it's not clear cut, but the main thing is we need to teach kids to know what they want and know how to tell someone else what they want, know, and then also know how to ask someone else what they want and to be checking in all the time. So I think it's really, I have a bit of a view, if you can't talk about sex, you shouldn't be having it. But I mean, that probably is too black and white, really. That's not a very helpful oh, framework. Pretty good rule for life, I think. <laughs> but, I, but I think with, um, as young people are working through it, we need to, you know, in, in classes and with parents and carers and in peer groups, we just need to have safe spaces to talk about stuff and it shouldn't be awkward. And I think that starts with conversations around masturbation, which is a whole other thing. But I feel like that's a space where if we teach kids a little bit more about, about being comfortable with their own bodies and what works for them, I think that, that takes you a long way in life. <laughs> oh, Carol, thank you so much. You've given us such valuable information today. And I think we definitely all need to be passing on the link to your wonderful service to have in our back pocket for our young people to, so that if they ever need some advice, they can jump on the online chat or send off your your web form as you said and what what an amazing resource to have thank you it's a lovely place to work we feel very privileged to work with kids and it's uh, it's exciting to see how brave kids can be and the questions that they ask that they just sort of type it and put it out into the universe and hope that we'll I mean, we, that's how we see them, brave and hopeful, that they put out these big questions and just hope that someone's on the other end. And often they say that, I hope someone sees this or thanks for reading this far or really appreciate you helping me. And I, I feel like that's, it's a privilege to be in that space where we can do that work with kids. And we've got a, an awesome group of young lawyers and volunteers that work with us in this space and, and all have the same amazing child rights focus and kids have a right to this stuff and it's our it's our job to make sure that we have more and more services that are they're focused on children and young people because there's there's not a lot actually when you look around there's not a lot of services that 
have that opportunity to be there for kids in that way. And as I flagged earlier, I really want to emphasise that we're not mandatory reporters, with the exception of the Northern Territory. Lawyers in the Northern Territory are in a little bit of a grey area. (laughs) There's always an exception, as we found, between the states. Yeah, so I think generally that just means that you can come and have a chat to us and not be so worried that we're going to turn around and tell your parents or tell a caseworker or the police. And that's very reassuring, I think. And, you know, parents should also process that information as well because I know sometimes they're very worried that... The kids aren't talking to anybody and I think unfortunately self-harm and suicide are huge risks in this space. We do know that we have lots of kids disclosing to us that they're self-harming and it may manifest in ways that people don't necessarily link. For example, eating disorders are a huge part of this space that we have a lot of kids with who've been publicly shamed uh, with image-based abuse will develop eating disorders around that because there'll been so much criticism and commentary on what they look like. So we're very conscious of that, that we also have to be taking care of kids and making sure they have access to therapeutic and you know counselling support services when they need that. So it's certainly not something that just lawyers can do. We're very grateful to have lots of other awesome organisations that work with kids that we can link them in with in this space to keep them safe. But we do see a benefit sometimes with these kinds of matters, in particular where it's where they may have also committed an offence that they, where possible, speak to a lawyer first. At Youth Law Australia, thank you so much for the information you've given us today, Carolyn. Incredibly valuable. No, thank you very much. Really great to be part of this series and, uh, yeah, appreciate that. Thanks, Nance. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.